Good morning, everybody. I am Michael Flake, one of the pastors here. Great to be together as a church family this morning, both in the Y and online. So fun to worship together. Whether you're cautious about Jesus, curious about Jesus, or committed to Jesus, there's room for you here. This is a safe place to learn, to grow, and to change. So long as you don't have it all together, you'll fit right in. Well, I'm going to ask uh, Allie Frechette to join me. We have a real treat this morning. Uh, going to ask Allie to share a little part of her God story, some of what God has been writing and rewriting in her life. John and Allie joined our church, became part of our church during the pandemic. During the pandemic. Uh, jumped right in serving with our middle school students and just uh, finished the Welcome 101 class. So everybody, please join me in welcoming Allie. Hello, everyone. Um, John, I really couldn't be more thankful um, just for be a part of your church and just for all the families that poured into us and just have made Davidson feel more like home. So thank you for everybody. Um, so with that, I grew up in a home with two parents who loved the Lord. Um, they would pack my siblings and I up for church every Sunday. We attended every church camp, retreat, event out there. Um, but God was in my life growing up, but I didn't fully know him yet. Looking back, I can see specific moments where God has shown himself to me time and time again. I was around eight years old when I had uh, one of my first encounters with God. I started having episodes where I was hearing voices that night. I remember my parents would come into my room, pray with me, and recite scripture with me. After a time had passed, I finally um, cried out to God on my own after periods of doubt where I was like, are these Bible verses really going to do anything for me? Um, but I experienced this overwhelming peace that night. I felt the presence of God sitting right there with me on top of my little bunk bed, assuring me that I would no longer have to fear those voices coming back. My life did not drastically change as an eight-year-old after that incident. Um, I continued to go through the motions of church and did not really have any interest to spend time with God on my own at that point. My teenage years rolled around, and I found myself striving for purpose and meaning. I had moments where I found that in God, but more often than not, I looked everywhere other than God to fill those voids. It wasn't until my junior year in high school where I felt like I hit my lowest of lows. I remember sitting in my bedroom floor in the middle of the summer crying out to God. I was alone, exhausted, and desperate for His grace. I pulled out one of the few devotionals that I had from my grandma on top of this dusty shelf. She would give us about like two devotionals for every holiday and birthday, so I had a lot up there. <laughs> that same presence I felt when I was eight years old met me there again. Except this time I wrestled with a really tough question. Would I follow him or would I hang on to all the things that I had gotten myself into? I was so overwhelmed by his love that I genuinely wanted nothing to do with the things that I had gotten into. Within a matter of days, I came clean to my parents, close friends, and family, ended up breaking up with the boyfriend that they thought I wasn't dating, and I had to explain to my friends at school why I ended that relationship. I was so in love and overjoyed with Jesus that I definitely came across as this Jesus freak at school. I lost a lot of the trust in my parents. I was um, kind of lost the respect to my friends, and I felt isolated by the people at school for being too religious. I truly felt so refreshed by God's love that I never wanted to go back to the mess that I was in. For the first time, I felt accepted for who I was, and that was more than enough. 
eventually attended Liberty University, which was drastically different than the small town in Connecticut where I was from. I quickly immersed myself in the Christian community and education, and I continued to wrestle and grow in my faith during these years. I struggled to believe that my identity in God was enough. I slowly started to believe lies about my identity and denied who God said that I was. I slowly started to believe, um, as the lies grew, I started to act on them. I became obsessed with exercise, burning calories, and eating the right foods. I was so consumed by meeting the standard I had set for myself that I lost sight of who I truly was. I was dangerously underweight and I could not see that reality with my own eyes. I needed God to break through the lies I was believing and give me clear vision to see myself the way that he sees me. Sure enough, our faithful and merciful God broke through this disorder in a miraculous way. I believe God put specific people, scriptures, and events in my life to grab a hold of my attention and wake me up to that reality. And I can't thank God enough for the faithful people God put in my life during my time at Liberty. One of those people, my husband, um, who loved and pursued me during a season where I was definitely not easy to love. Um, By his pursuit and care for me, I was able to understand the love, patience, and grace of God on a different level. So I have to remind myself to look back and remember that when I trust in anything other than God's, um, anything other than what God says, it will lead to destruction. It was through the times where I towed the line of what I wanted to do instead of trusting in God where I learned just how desperately I need to cling to what the word says. It wasn't until I started to let go of Allie's ways and rest in who God says that I was when I started to recover and heal. So if any of you are in a place where you don't know if you've ever seen God, be assured that the same God that changed me and sought me out in the middle of all my mess loves you just as much and is capable um, of exactly as much and more in your life. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Allie. Good good to be reminded that our identity is who and who God says we are, and that, that our middle schoolers are learning that from a very early, very early age. Today is a fun day because we get to celebrate some of our newest ministry partners. And when you join Lake Forest, you're not called a member, you're called a ministry partner. Member implies if you pay your dues, you'll get certain rights and privileges. Ministry partner implies that God's given you a purpose or a ministry. God's given our church a purpose or a ministry, and we choose to partner the two to create something beautiful. When we started this here fine church in August of 2011, we prayed, God, bring us people who are hurting that they might experience your healing among us. And so it's always good to have new ministry partners step up as part of how God answers that prayer. So if you have gone through the Welcome 101 class or the Foundations class, and are uh, being recognized as a new ministry partner this morning, will you stand where you are? And if, not very good. And if you're online, I guess you can stand up in your home and just put in the comments so we can recognize you. If somebody texts in in the comments, let me know. Very technologically astute operation this morning. Well, well, let me uh, introduce all these fine folks. Uh, with, the, with the caveat that I have small children at home, sometimes my mind blanks. We have uh, Lisa and Emily and Larry. We have Jim and Lynn, and we have Matt. We have Allie, who you just heard from, John, and Jacob. 
Did I call everyone the right name? Did I miss anybody? Did anyone put anything in the comments? Wonderful. Excellent. Well, being a ministry partner is a commitment to God and this church family. It comes from answering yes to the following five questions. Are you ready? That's not one of the questions. Number one, do you acknowledge your relationship with God was beyond repair until God, by his grace and mercy, repaired it and reached out to you? Do you? Do you believe the Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the healer of lives? Do you depend upon him alone to reconcile you to God? Do you? Do you promise, humbly relying on God the Holy Spirit, to live as a follower of Christ whose life points people to God? Do you? You promise to serve Jesus as part of this church, not just sitting and soaking, but serving others on Sunday morning and throughout the week. Do you? And do you submit yourself to the accountability and oversight of the church's leaders promising to promote the unity, the purity, the peace of the church? Do you? Wonderful. Let me pray for you all. Lord, we do lift up these folks who are standing in this moment. We know that becoming a ministry partner means different things to different people, but for everyone it's a step forward. And so, Lord, I pray you would meet each of these people in that step forward. I pray that as the years go on, that they will be transformed. I pray that their presence among us will transform our church family. And that together, we might shine your light of hope to a hurting world. We thank you for Allie and the work you're doing in her life and in the life of everyone else standing. We thank you that we don't have to have it all together as we follow you. But Lord, you continue to lead us and shape us and let us pour into others. So Lord, will you make us brave to talk about your good work in our lives? We pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Will you join me in celebrating, welcoming? All right, now you have to stay standing for the rest of the service, and then the hazing will officially be over. Well, in 2016, Mandy and I went on a sabbatical. In fact, Matt Glass, this summer you are eligible. You are taking a sabbatical, you and your family, yes. That will be wonderful. As a sabbatical is a scheduled time of renewal, in this case for Matt, for his family, to prepare for their next run in ministry with us. But our sabbatical, we did a lot of traveling in 2016. We visited Davidson's peer colleges trying to see what kind of churches and ministries were thriving in those settings and dreaming about how we might be part of trying to help start or strengthen congregations in places like Davidson as the years go on. Well, one day we were driving from Maine to Middlebury, Vermont, and it was a full day of driving from Maine to Middlebury, Vermont. We were almost to Middlebury. We just had to go 30 miles on Vermont 17. How hard could that be? 30 miles on Vermont 17. The first sign of trouble was a literal sign. It said, caution, rough road. It was not a temporary sign. It was a permanently mounted sign. Mandy and I were in a Honda Fit, and at least our Fit had the added feature of letting you feel every bump along the road. 
And so somewhere around mile four of 30, mile four, we were done. Done. Done with the day. Done with driving. Done with Vermont 17. Done with our sabbatical. We were done. And all we had between us and our destination was a long, winding, rough road. (laughs) Have you ever been there? The only thing between you and your destination is a long, winding, bumpy road. That's just part of life. And it's actually part of the Christian life as well. That as a follower of Jesus, or if today or in the future you become a follower of Jesus, as a follower of Jesus, the Bible tells you that you are a new creation. You are called into a different kind of life, an abundant life, a different kind of joy and a different kind of purpose, a new security as a follower in a relationship with Jesus. And yet, the Christian life is not just one straight, smooth road. Cultivating godly character is not a straight, smooth road. Re-examining who you really are, letting God do a little demolition and remodeling work in your life, these are not straight and smooth roads. Yes, the destination is amazing, and yes, the traveling companion is the best, but what do you do on the rough roads? How do you and I handle the rough roads? Today we continue our year-long series of sermons called The Story with a capital S. We are walking through the big picture of the Bible that from the beginning of time God has been painting a great story in this world, writing a great story in this world. You are invited to come and find your place in it. And we've put together resources to help you in that. They come out each week in our weekly email. You can find them online as well, trying to make the Bible less big and intimidating. In the beginning, that's how the Bible begins, in the beginning, God created the world and created humanity in his own image, and yet humanity and all of creation were lured into rebelling against God. But then God made a promise, a commitment, a covenant to Abraham and to Sarah, promising to bless all the peoples of the world through their family. Their family became so large that they became a people, the Hebrew people. And then last week we saw that people, we're at the part of the Bible where that people has unified into a kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. So a family became a people, became a kingdom, and their king is King David. We zoom back in where we left left off last week on King David. 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is really one of those unexpected highlights of the Bible. 2 Samuel chapter 7. He said to Nathan, he is David, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. So King David is talking to the prophet Nathan. Nathan is a prophet in the Old Testament. That means he is someone who hears from God and delivers God's message to the people. Nathan is kind of like David's right-hand prophet. He's a man of great integrity. He will relay what God is telling him about certain things. He doesn't do it for personal gain. He doesn't let his own biases warp it. He's a beloved and trusted prophet who shares God's message with the people and with King David. King David shares this concern he has with Nathan. And the concern is, I'm the king with a little K, and I live in a house, in a palace. But we worship God out in a tent. That's called the tabernacle. We worship God out in a tent. And the ark of God, a la Raiders of the Lost Ark, the ark of God is sitting out in that tent. 
Doesn't our king with a capital K deserve to have a house, a temple, if I, the king with the lowercase k, have a house? That's an interesting question. 2 Samuel 7, verse 3, chapter 7, verse 3, Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. So Nathan essentially says, God has not given me any specific insight about whether this is a good idea, and you're God's chosen leader, so do what you think is right. Do what you see fit. But then later that evening, Nathan did get some direction directly from the Lord about this whole temple thing, and he texted David, or I guess he didn't, he did whatever we did before texting, which is really hard to remember what that is. But he texted something like, uh, God does have thoughts on temple, complicated, call when you can, facepalm emoji, mind-blown emoji, send. Some of you are mind-blown. I know what an emoji is, I think. Well, Pete read this for us earlier, that Nathan receives this communication from God and then sends it directly to King David about the whole temple thing. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. And you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. So now, wait a minute. The whole question was, should David build a house for God? And God's answer is, I will build a house for you. What? Do you ever feel like God is answering a different question than the one you're asking? I know I felt that way when I bring my questions to the Scripture, to God's Word, to the Bible. I sometimes feel like God is answering a different question than I'm asking. As if part of what God's trying to do is shape my heart, shape my mind, value different things, ask different questions, prioritize things differently. Talk about a bumpy road. David wants to establish a house for God, but God tells Nathan to tell David, actually what's most important is that I, the Lord, am going to establish a house for you. And God's not talking about a literal structure. He's talking about David's family, his offspring, that one of David's children will be king after David. So the message continues. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So this is God speaking to David through Nathan. And he says, he is the one, your offspring is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So this answers David's question, and it accounts for the facepalm emoji. Turns out God did have some thoughts about the whole temple thing. Nathan had jumped the gun a little bit by saying God had no thoughts on that. The temple is not David's to build. It will be his successor, his son, who will build the temple. Tune in next week. But the answer to David's question is almost like a footnote, because God is answering a totally different question, one that David didn't really even know to ask. 
God's word through Nathan to David is, I will establish the throne of your son's kingdom forever. Forever. Now that accounts for the mind-blown emoji. What does that even mean? David and Nathan must have wondered. How can a kingdom last forever? A kingdom can last till the end of time, but how can a kingdom last forever? Maybe God's not being super precise here. Maybe God's just rounding a little bit. The message continues. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nope, God's not just rounding a little bit or being imprecise. He's now repeated the same word. You don't need to be an English major at Davidson to get the point here. He's repeated the word forever. God says to David, out of your house, out of your offspring will come an eternal kingdom with an eternal throne. It will last forever. That's what you really need to know. P.S. Your son will build the temple. And now, it seems like we are four months into the story. We're at the beginning of May. We, we're four months into the story with a capital S, and finally it feels like we're starting to see what the destination is going to be. We finally have a little bit more defined of a destination that David or his successor or his successor or his successor, someone in this family is going to inaugurate an eternal kingdom, an eternal throne. We're finally headed towards something. I mean, I don't really know what it is, but it sounds great. It sounds like a different kind of life under a a, a permanent king, and I hope we get there soon. And this is when the Bible turns on to Vermont 17. David has an affair with a woman named Bathsheba, has her husband killed to cover it up. David's kids watch her come to and from the palace over and over. It's very obvious what's happening here. And what his kids learn is that when you have power, you can do whatever you want. And they started to act on that. They turned against their father. And what happens is that David's family and David's, David's kingdom start to crumble. And it's almost entirely his fault. We've passed the point of that permanent sign that says, caution, rough road. The only thing between us and this amazing destination, this eternal kingdom, this eternal throne, whatever this is, is a long a winding, a rough, bumpy road. How hard could this be? Well, David and Bathsheba have a son named Solomon. And God, ever eager to redeem, makes Solomon the next king. In other words, tune in next week. The king who will build the temple comes out of the relationship between David and Bathsheba. Imagine that. God is going to teach us how to trace the rainbow through the rain. God is going to teach us how to follow that golden thread through this often chaotic-looking tapestry. There is a reason for hope, even on the roughest roads, The future is hopeful, even when you and I can't yet see the destination. God still knows what he's doing, even when we don't. 
to remind you of the three major highlight passages of the Bible thus far. Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So God says in chapter 3 to the ancient serpent, the serpent who lured humanity into rebelling against God, who lures each of us into rebelling against God, God says that someone, the offspring of a woman, someone is coming and will be wounded by evil but will destroy evil, will crush evil. The wounded champion will undo the curse that we've brought on ourselves. And then God tells Sarah and Abraham in Genesis 17, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting, there's that word again, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your ancestors after you. So God makes a covenant, a a promise, an everlasting promise with Abraham, with Sarah, to bless the people of every family through their family. And so now today, we see God promise King David, and King David is a descendant of Abraham and Sarah. We see uh, God telling King David that through his family, God will establish an eternal throne, an eternal kingdom. What exactly does that mean? And what, if anything, does it have to do with God's promise to bless all people through Abraham and Sarah, and what, if anything, does it have to do with that wounded champion from way back in chapter 3 we're still waiting for? These questions began to compile for the people of that time, and it made people hopeful for what they began to call a Messiah. Now, we use the term Messiah today, so we say like, oh, he has a Messiah complex and that kind of thing. But, but what it means, what it originally means, it's a very technical theological term. It refers to God's promised deliverer, but what it literally means is the anointed one. So when a person became king, when David became king, David was anointed with oil to symbolize that. So in waiting for the Messiah, waiting for the anointed one, who are the people waiting for? They're waiting, for, they're waiting for the king, right? If you anoint the king, the anointed one is the king. We're waiting for the king who will inaugurate the eternal kingdom and sit on that eternal throne. So Messiah is, is a term very much tied into the idea of an eternal kingdom and an eternal throne because it means anointed one. Like kings were anointed, but this is not an anointed one. This is the anointed one, the king, to reign over that eternal kingdom and that eternal throne. The promise of this Messiah gave people reason for hope, even on the long and bumpy roads. Today, the work of that Messiah gives us reason for hope, even on the long and bumpy roads. Who will God anoint to lead this eternal kingdom? Well, David would have been a good guess. I mean, he's a, he's a shepherd, he's a king, he was born in a little town called Bethlehem. But that's a pretty good resume, but it wasn't David. In the very first ever Christian sermon, Peter said this. 
This is from Acts 2 in the New Testament. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Does this sound familiar? Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Now, yes, Jesus died in disgrace. A crown of thorns, thorns were a symbol of human rebellion in Genesis 3. A crown of thorns mashed atop his head. He's a king of humility, a king of suffering. The problem is dead kings do not lead eternal kingdoms. And this is why the resurrection of Jesus changed the lives of his earliest followers. Ultimately, the resurrection of Jesus changed the trajectory of the whole world. And this is because resurrected kings can lead eternal kingdoms. The world coronated Jesus, and God vindicated Jesus. The world coronated Jesus, and God vindicated Jesus, raising him up from death and anointing him to reign over the forever kingdom, the eternal throne, the leader of God's eternal kingdom. And the way you can remember this is that the Hebrew word Messiah ultimately made its way over into Greek. It did it through a couple languages, and so some letters got scrambled, and the old Hebrew word for Messiah became the Greek word Christos, from which we get the English word Christ. So when you say Jesus Christ, in church, of course, would be the only place you would ever say it, but when you say that, when you say that, you, you are saying that Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title. It means the Messiah, the anointed one, the king who reigns on the eternal throne over the eternal kingdom. Jesus Christ or Jesus the Christ is not just a little, you know, easy phrase. There's a deep truth hidden in those simple words. The one we've been waiting for, Jesus the Christ. Now, David and Nathan did not know all this. <laughs> they did not know all this. But they did know that on, even on rough roads, we can proceed with hope. They knew that God's promises and God's plan do not depend on our circumstances. And I guess that's really my point today. God's promises and God's plans do not depend on our circumstances. They had a hopeful future. They trusted God. They trusted that the winding, long, bumpy, rough road was leading somewhere. And that somehow God had it all in his hands. God had it all under his care. They didn't yet know his name, but they had a hopeful future because of Jesus. What about you? Because rough roads often do force us to ask important questions. So the question I ask you today, or if you're on a rough road, or the question I will ask you to hold on to when you get onto that rough road is, do you have a hopeful future? Is this road leading somewhere?
Does God have this under his control, in his hands? Do you have a hopeful future? And is your hope more like wishing or more like confidence? Because we use the term hope to mean both of those things. Is your hope, is your hoping more like wishing or more like confidence? The Bible describes faith in being confident in what we hope for. Now, the truth is, you don't have to have truckloads of faith to come to Jesus. You don't have to have airtight confidence to come to Jesus. He is an eternal king, and he does sit on an eternal throne, but he is still the king of the humble. He is still the king of the suffering. He is still the king of all those who desire to stop rebelling against God. And so even if you have a little bit more than no faith, if you have just a little bit more than no trust in Jesus, just a little bit more than no confidence that Jesus gives you reason for hope, even on the roughest of roads, just a little bit more than nothing, Jesus invites you to come and be made new in his eternal embrace. He invites you to come and be a citizen of his eternal kingdom, his eternal throne. I love how when Allie shared when that sort of uh, reality first took hold in her life, she seemed different, almost wildly, strangely different to the people who had known her previously. You might say, that seems, I mean, why? How, is it, how can I get excited about something I've never seen? How, how, how can I be hopeful about something I've never seen firsthand? And the answer is, you do it all the time. Every time you travel to a place you've never been, you get excited and hopeful about a place you've never seen. So confident, in fact, you bought the ticket, you got on the plane, you, got a, you had a middle seat for crying out loud, and you still went. That hope, that excitement keeps us going, even when we find ourselves on Vermont 17. Well, let's pray together. Let me give you a chance to pray, a chance to talk to God, to listen to God. Whatever he's stirring up in your heart or in your mind, just take this quiet moment for personal prayer. Lord, this morning we praise you as the eternal king on the eternal throne and also as the king of the humble, the king of the suffering. And you are leading us into a destination 
we don't quite know what it is all the time. And sometimes the journey is easy, and sometimes the journey is rough. And so, Lord, for those of us who find ourselves in humble places today, places of suffering today, I pray we would feel your closeness. Since you being with us, know that you desire to be with your people and that we don't walk through this alone. And in fact, you've given us a church family, people in our lives who can walk with us as well. Lord, I pray for all of us, we will gain a deeper confidence that we serve an eternal king on an eternal throne, coronated in humility, raised up in victory. And whatever we face today or tomorrow or whenever, whatever we face, you are greater, and you have our best interest at heart. Lord, I thank you that your kingdom is very open, eager to receive new citizens daily. And so, Lord, for some of us in this time and these songs that follow, I pray that we will open our hearts to you and ask to become citizens of your eternal kingdom, to live our lives under your eternal reign. And we'll do it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. As Holly said, we would love to pray for you. So if prayer is part of your worship today, be sure to email prayer requests or put them in the basket as you head out. If giving's part of your worship today online, that's lakeforest.org slash give. In the gym, it's the basket on the way out. Let's stand. Let's worship together.